ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I was tired of hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Are you telling me you built a time machine? What about the Gloria? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like he's got a case of the Mundus. <laughs> Welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Enough Cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year Young Enough survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, Young Enough Breast Cancer Fighter, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It's not okay that 72,000 of adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listen to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. On tonight's show, Radical Remission with Dr. Kelly Turner, Ph.D. and New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds a compelling book which summarizes her research in the field of spontaneous remission and integrative oncology. Joining her is Dr. Mitchell Gaynor, founder and president of the Gaynor Integrative Oncology in New York City and Survivor Spotlight on Brittany Roth. I'm Maureen Sweet, manager of programs and operations. Being throughout the broadcast at ChemoDeck, so send me your questions and feedback at any time using hashtag SDRadio. All right. A big applause. What up? Good evening, Kenny, Matthew, Maureen, Matt, Annie. Hi. And Mallory on the couch, waving on the radio. Waving. Yes. Yep. How you doing? We're good. We got a packed house tonight. We sure do. We do. Good stuff. Everybody's here. Everybody is here. Um, and then some more people are here after yeah, that. Yeah, exactly. Uh, and it's not a thousand degrees for some reason in this room. Not on wood. Yes. At least for right now. For now, yeah. We are now check, talking. Check mm-hmm. back in an hour. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Well, anyway, happy Father's Day. A very happy Father's Day to you, to me. the father yeah. on our staff. Thank you. Not of us. My, <laughs> my girlfriend's mother wished me a happy future's father, future father day, Father's Day, as I can speak. That is. That's a very Southern thing to do. Slightly awkward, but I get it. So what did you do? What was your reaction? I said, insert pictures of the quads here. Because she also is willing four children on us. Wow. What? 
You're not even married. Why don't you guys get there first? Well, <laughs> part of the joke. Okay. <laughs> anyway, yeah, I had a, my, my dad is uh, 68. We had a wonderful Father's Day. My wife uh, celebrated with her father. Mm-hmm. And uh, my children um, bought me uh, tinnitus for screaming in my ear. Wow. A what? Tinnitus. You know, the ringing that never oh. goes away? Yeah, I have screaming as loud as possible and destroying everything in your brain. I yeah. have that from radiation and brain surgery. Yeah, I have, probably do too. I have it from four-year-olds. Okay. Really great gift. Yeah, it's, it's, it's the gift that keeps on giving because <laughs> it never, ever stops. Yeah. Exactly. Yes, it does not. Um, in the world of good news, we had a huge media pickup today for those of you that saw us on social. TechCrunch, mm-hmm. the mm-hmm. TechCrunch, did a huge piece. Uh, basically extolling the virtues of our uh, forthcoming mobile app called Instapeer. Uh, you could check our social, Twitter, and I think we Instagrammed it, and it's on Facebook and whatnot. But, uh, yeah, TechCrunch did a, a hell of a job. Thank you guys so much for, uh, not that they're listening, but <laughs> thank you very yeah, much. Maybe they are. You never know. It's entirely possible. Thank mm-hmm. you. Thank you, everyone who read it yes. and shared it with their friends. We have now been crunched. Yes, and it's the first week since both the Fault in Our Stars opened and ABC Chasing Life's debuted. Mm-hmm. There has been significant feedback from the community on both sides, but I, what I found most compelling, and I'd love your thoughts on this, is all the young adults who wrote a blog about it that said they can't watch it. Mm-hmm. Makes sense, right? Sometimes. Well, some people are saying that. Some people are you know, really excited to be seeing it and to see the spotlight being turned on to young adult cancer and you know, having being able to show this to their friends um, and say, this is my experience from somebody else's perspective, and this is a way that you can more relate to what I've been through or what I am going through right now. Um, on the other hand, for some people, it's a little too close to home, and that's completely understandable as well. And a lot of the critics said that it was too real. So especially the Fault in Our Stars, they said it was too real, and that's why it was hard for people to watch it. Mm-hmm. Um, I read the book. And I had a hard time with it. I cried a lot. But I think I would have cried a lot even before I ever had cancer. Yeah. Because it's just a great story. But as a non-cancer I survivor, know. I cried a lot. Yeah. So, and my coworkers said the same thing. But I don't know. I thought it was good. And I thought Chasing Life was excellent. Yeah. We talked about it for the whole hour last week. And mm-hmm. it was a great show. I was hoping that the second episode would be put online just like the first one. So they could watch it early. Yeah, they've given me um, the script. Post tomorrow for mm-hmm. tomorrow night's uh, episode two. Awesome, and they've been giving us a lot of shoutouts on Facebook. No, they've been ABC Family. Yeah, ABC Family. And um, one of the things I I I heard, I forget who said it to me, but they were in the theater, and they were in, uh, and apparently everyone that went to go see see this movie was either a sixteen year old, a young adult with cancer, or some geriatric, and. The young adult survivors that I spoke to were telling me that the teenagers that were seeing this movie did not have any sense of understanding to the gravity of cancer, which you can't literally fault them for. But one was overheard saying, man, I wish I had cancer so I could have a love like that. I heard that somewhere, too. Yeah. And I don't remember where. And it was, I was like, are you crazy? Yeah. yeah. Well, yes, they are 16. Yeah, they're a little irrational. I don't think that's a bit of an anomaly. I don't think most teenagers would say that. As stupid as I would never are. say that, but um, but yeah, I, I think I think they are start. I think they're understanding a little more than we're giving them credit for, though. I'm kind of scared to see it out in public, so I might go by myself, like during the week, 
during the day. Oh, yeah, I go to like so 11 can, a.m. showing. Yeah, so I can walk out with yourself? sunglasses and it won't be weird. Yeah. <laughs> so I can ugly car by myself. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't know, that's my plan at least. Well, we have a special uh, drop-in guest tonight. Rosa Armstrong is joining us uh, from Brooklyn right here in town. Uh, she's hosting, get this, guys, a crazy fundraiser uh, called The Good F, um, which is on August 24th in, wh- wh- where is it being held again? It's at the Aviator Field in Brooklyn. That is super cool, by the Marine Park Bridge. And um, it is it is sexy female flag football. And that is her words, not mine, but I agree with that. And uh, probably the coolest thing anyone's really done for us in, in the sense of we've never had sexy flag football female <laughs> Right. Um, from the male perspective, yes. it's cool. yeah, it's from, from the coolest. Yeah, best thing ever. From, from this part of the table, this, this part of the table with me and Kenny on it. Yeah. But you uh, you lost your cousin at age 27 to cancer, and um, you have a history of cancer in your family. This is how you were touched and inspired you. So thanks for joining us tonight. Thank you for I'm having me. I'm sorry you have to be here because of what you went through, but why don't you tell us a little bit about uh, your family history? Um. Well, cervical cancer seems to run in my family on my mother's side. Um, My cousin was the only one who did pass away, and and it was really because she was too concerned with, oh, I have to go to work, oh, I have to go to school, you you know, all these things that young adults go through. And so um, that kind of brings me to the event and why it's very important to me to bring awareness that, that, you know, your health is very important, you know, going to the doctor, because as young adults, we don't go to the doctor. We don't, I mean, unless you're sick or dying, you know what I mean? So this event is kind of like bamboozling um, other young adults. Like, listen, this is how we're going to get you here. But once you're here, you know what I mean? It's like, hey, hey, come look at this table. Come look at these pamphlets. Come let me tell you about why it's important to go to the doctor. Right. So that's what this kind of is all about. Now, given your family history, have you been tested at all for your genetic predispositions? Yeah, I go every six months. I go every six months um, because I'm so inclined to possibly getting the cervical cancer. I mean, there's other health backgrounds which predisposes me to the cervical cancer. Um, Like living in New York. (laughs) <laughs> and breathing our fabulous air. Yes, exactly, and drinking that uh, the Bloomberg's finest or uh, the Blasio's finest. You know, now. funny you say that. I was in a restaurant the other day, and I said the Blasio's finest, and the waiter had no idea what I was talking about. <laughs> Is that a rare thing, guys? Uh, that's the first time I've heard this word really? referred to. As but that. I've all, I've done that with you. I'm not from here. I've never heard that. I've never heard you say that. Bloomberg's finest is the tap Was water. I paying attention? Did I have headphones in? Yeah, City. you might have been listening to your iTunes. New York City is very well known for its tap water. Yeah. I would like to say that it is the best tap water that I've ever, ever had the pleasure of drinking. Well, it comes from, like, Albany. Like, up, like there's a real actual, like, from Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it comes from oh, a Portland Springs bottle attached yeah. to your thing. It does. It does. <laughs> Phenomenal. Well, what can we expect at the... Uh, at this uh, amazing flag football, inaugural flag football. I'm going to make Matt wear a blindfold. No. no. <laughs> well, um, there are eight teams. Each team holds 15 girls. Um, some of them are more athletically inclined than others, but it's really just a day. Like, it's fun. Uh, the girls are going to be wearing, you know, not the most most fit of clothing. Um, they have bars. Settle down, Kenny. <laughs> There's, I didn't say anything. <laughs> there's bars and there's going to be like this great halftime show. It's really like Varsity Blues, like Friday Night Lights kind of thing with right. a purpose. You know what I mean? Yeah, because that other stuff has no purpose. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it has no, 
No other purpose. No other purpose. Um, What's it, your turnout expected to be? What are, what are you hoping for? What am I hoping? I'm hoping for about a thousand people. Wow. I'm hoping for about a thousand. It, I mean, the, that the, might break records for us. The stadium holds more, but um, it, this is the first time we're doing this. Um, it's really just me and my sister kind of behind this. So um, the first time it's going to be a little rough on the edges, but maybe next year or the following year um, we'll have a complete full house of like 3,000 people. Wow. Maybe. I don't know. I don't know. It's, that's hopeful thinking. <laughs> Five years he'll be at the middle. We may have to, uh, we may have to make some stupid cancer bikinis or whatever they will be wearing. They are wearing bikini-ish I, things. Yeah. Bikini-ish. <laughs> like along the we line. might have to brand them. You could definitely do that. Send over some iron-ons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they could wear the, uh, the motorcycle patches yeah. on their ass. Yeah. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. And how are you market? I mean, obviously the show, but how are you getting the word out? Besides Matt's dad, who listens every week. Yeah, <laughs> my my dad will promote this for sure. Um, we are using uh, social media. This is uh, one of the things with our captains. Our captains have very large social media followings. I mean, these girls have followings of like a hundred thousand, three hundred thousand people. So they're really utilizing um, their reach for good. Um, and so we have the social, we have the Twitter, we have the Instagram, the Facebook. Um, we are hitting up the bloggers. We're hitting anyone who will like let me in, and come talk, or right. or will write something. Counting pavement. Yes. Very yes. nice. Speaking of Dumb and Dumber, it reminds me of the scene at the end when the bus pulls up and they hop off and they're like, "Hey, do you guys need to, or we need two guys to come help us oil up before?" <laughs> <laughs> well, again, like this is super cool. Uh, we will be promoting it, but I'm I'm I will be there um, with apparently bikinis on, but that's disgusting. So we'll be there with regular clothing. Yes, yeah. we'll be there in yeah. pants and shirts. Okay, yeah. or shorts or something. It's yeah. going to be the end of August. Yeah. Don't come like Floyd Benefield. Yes, Floyd Benefield. Floyd Benefield. We're all going to convert to Orthodox Judaism. Which used to be an airport. Yeah, I mean, it's like giant, amazing something center, right? Yeah, it's like some type of sports and athletic center. Um, and I only know that it used to be an airport because. I asked, him, I asked, no, I didn't even, I didn't even see that. I asked him if we could do fireworks, and they're like, no, are you crazy? It'll set the whole like place on fire because of all the like dead trees and stuff. Yeah. It's like, oh, my bad. <laughs> it was like a private airport when JFK was Idlewild back in like the fifties and sixties. Hmm. Oh wow. Closed down. Back when you know you were retiring from your first job. Yes. <laughs> thank you. Ouch. Okay. Anyway, well, thank you for joining us. You're here all night. I am. I am. And uh, we'll talk after the show. Okay. But cool. is there what's the website? Uh it's the good F T H E G O O D F dot com. The good F dot com. Awesome. Well thank you so much. Very excited. Further ado, let's uh, kick off here and get our uh, survivor spotlight here on the line. Brittany Ross was diagnosed with acute myeloleukemia at the age of 15 and was given a 30% five-year survival rate. 14 years later, she's now 29, married, and completely cancer-free. Brittany, welcome to the show. Hello, Brittany. Hi. How are you? I'm good. How are you? We're really excited to have you on. It was uh, just for um, for the record, I was in uh, Denver for the first Descent's Ball a couple of months ago, and I uh, checked in on Facebook that I was there. And, you know, I do that, and a thousand people comment, hey, where are you? Where are you? And uh, Britain was persistent but respectful, and it was very exciting to go and uh, meet up with her and her husband. It's an incredible story she has. She's very, 
very heavily involved in the cancer community, particularly the uh, youth cancer community in Denver, and uh, she herself being uh, a long-term survivor. We want to make the point that Stupid Cancer is an organization for young adults, but that includes nearly 350,000 Americans who were diagnosed as kids and are now joining us in Las Vegas for our epic parties. But uh, Brittany, thank you for coming on the show. Yes, absolutely. No problem. So why don't we get started with uh, life at the age of 14 and uh, how everything changed at the age of 15? Um, I mean, life at the age of 14, uh, you know, I was in high school and I was, uh, you know, trying to stay in school because I was getting sick, uh, you know, so often at that point. I was trying to, you know, be in school with my friends as much as I could, but because I continuously was just getting sick, you know, repeatedly time and time again, um, I missed quite a bit of school and, um, and it was, you know, it was tough and things just kind of progressively got worse and over the course of the year and into my sophomore year of high school, cause I was a freshman at that point and then went into my sophomore year and things just kind of spiraled from there. So tell us about life as a teenager trying to go through this whole process of cancer. Um, it definitely wasn't easy for sure. Um, I think I learned, especially as a teenager, I learned a lot of lessons that I probably either would have learned much later in life or that I wouldn't have learned at all, um, at a young age, which I'm glad I did now looking back, I'm glad that I, I learned the lessons that, that I did, um, at that age. It just, they weren't easy lessons to learn as a teenager. Um, but at this point, it's definitely helped to make me who I am today. So in the end, it kind of ended up helping me in the long run. How was it going through school? Did you miss a lot of time at school? Did you do chemotherapy? Um, did you yes, I was, I was inpatient. Uh, for I did two rounds of chemo. The first round was 35 days, and then I went home for three weeks, and then I went back in for another round of 45 days and was inpatient for the whole time that I was that I was going through chemotherapy. So I was not in school at that point. And then after being released from the hospital, I was homeschooled for the first two years after I got out of treatment before I was able to return to school kind of as a normal student again. Um, you know, I would try every now and again, I would try to go in for like one class or try to go in for a little bit if I, if I felt up to it. But other than that, I, I was homeschooled by a, by a homeschool teacher. Uh, I think it was like six to eight hours a week, um, so that I could be able to keep up with my schoolwork and be able to, to catch up with everybody. And, and that helped tremendously. Were you, um, I mean, we like to always mention that being 16, 17 kind of is hard enough. And granted, this was, uh, you know, 14 years ago or so, but I'm sure you still went through some massive social stigma. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, there were times in school when I tried to go in for a class or two. My school newspaper had actually done a big front-page article on me, so everybody knew who I was, even though I'd only been at that particular high school for like six weeks before I was initially diagnosed. And so when I came back, everybody knew what I looked like and everybody knew who I was. And, 
I think a lot of kids at that age don't know how to handle that situation or how to deal with that or have not been taught kind of how to, you know, what to say or kind of how to react or what to do in that circumstance. And so, yeah, I mean, it was, it was hard. I was teased and made fun of and laughed at and picked on and, uh, you know, there, there was a lot of pointing and staring and whispering and a lot of just feeling like I was kind of an outsider and feeling like I really didn't belong. And I was, I was hoping to be welcomed in with open arms and there were some that did, but the majority didn't necessarily welcome me back the way that I had initially hoped that I would be. I want you to walk us through your bone marrow transplant. Who was your donor? And um, I actually um, did not. Yeah. I actually didn't have a bone marrow transplant. Um, oh, okay. I actually was able to avoid having the transplant. I was supposed to, um, and they were looking into a match for me. But the best match they could find was a four out of six match, and they decided they didn't want to take the chance and they didn't want to take the risk because they didn't think that that donor was going to end up working for me and they they decided not to go through with it and kind of decided to sort of leave me alone and and see what happened and they watched me like a hawk and I ended up being able to avoid it and and ended up staying in full remission and basically lived off of blood transfusions and platelet transfusions and was in the clinic four to five days a week getting transfused from morning until night basically living off of you know what I was being given and they just kept me alive as long as they could and as best as they could. And, and luckily eventually my bone marrow, which got so wiped out that I went without a year, almost a full year without having any immune system or any bone marrow whatsoever at all. And it took almost a full year for it to start to grow back. And they watched it once it started to finally grow back in and made sure that everything that was growing back was healthy and normal and that there was nothing to be worried or concerned about most interesting about your diagnosis is typically children and teenagers get acute lymphoid leukemia, ALL. You had acute uh-huh. myeloid leukemia, which is incredibly yep. uncommon in children. Was that, did that yes. present a, a major challenge? Uh, yeah. I mean, my, you know, I think my particular story definitely had its twists and turns and unexpected things that came up and, um, you know, luckily I had amazing, an amazing medical team and, an, you know, amazing doctors and support structure um, that made sure I was getting, you know, the best treatment possible and made sure I was, I had every option available to me and making sure that I was going to be well taken care of. And so I got really lucky in terms of uh, that aspect of it. And I think that definitely helped to be able to deal with that diagnosis and, and to be able to get through, you know, the things that were going to come after the diagnosis happened. So why don't you walk us through, you graduate high school and uh, moving on to college. So did you go far away? Did you stay close to home? How did you, what was your college experience like? Um, I actually moved out to Colorado to go to college and, um, and it ended up going okay. I actually, you know, I started off slow and my energy and stamina and strength and things like that weren't not what they used to be. So when I initially started college, I could only handle taking one to two classes a semester because my energy level just wasn't that great and I couldn't handle being on campus for a full day. And so I would do one to two classes for the first couple, 
semesters or so, and then once my energy started to slowly come back, I would do three classes and then four classes and then five classes and kind of just built my way up. Um, and, you know, I did my associate's degree instead of doing it in two years. I did it in four years so I could be able to take my time and I didn't have to rush and I didn't have to stress and I could be able to kind of work at my own pace and go at my own speed, which definitely helped. Um, but I was committed to graduating from college because it was one of the things they said I would never do and I'm determined and persistent and headstrong and stubborn um, and I was not willing to quit or give up even when I couldn't necessarily get the help or support that I needed from my professors and things like that and I you know I was willing to do whatever it took to get it done and so I think I think the having that will and having that attitude to you know to do it no matter what helped me to battle through it no and incredibly inspirational I was hoping you would talk about you know we discussed how uh, there is a consequence to cure and a lot of people are um, you know unaware that cancer has side effects and late effects and can be mm-hmm. the gift that keeps on giving? You're out 14 years now, but you were treated with very aggressive protocols back then. Mm-hmm. Uh, would you share with us some of the wonderful litany of fabulous chronic issues you faced. Oh, I mean, there's so many. I mean, I became severely anemic, so when I go in for blood draws, it can take me up to like a week to fully recover. I'm just exhausted and really don't feel very well after getting blood draws done. Um, I've had to do bone marrow aspirations and biopsies every six months to once a year until I had my final one. I guess it was last, at the end of, not last year, but the year before, um, the end of 2012, I guess, um, was the last time I had one done. Um, I'm hypoglycemic, so I have to eat every few hours, otherwise my blood sugar will drop, and it makes me really not feel good. Um, I dealt with having osteoporosis for a while, which luckily now is is gone and is being kept under control. Um, And I was having heart issues for a while, which luckily don't seem to be happening at this point in time. Um, And, you know, everything from just getting tired easily to, uh, you know, just, I mean, things like if you get a cold or flu, it can take you four to six weeks to fully battle it out. Um, I had pneumonia for a month in January and literally spent a month in bed trying to recover and recuperate and trying to get better. Um, Just, it's, you know, I think there's just a lot of, and then in terms of school, it just, it makes things sometimes seem more difficult than it is. And, you know, I think it's, at least for me, it seemed like more of a, challenge than it probably was because I was dealing with health and, and medical issues on top of being in school and so it, it just made it seem that much harder and that much more challenging for me to be able to accomplish it. So why don't you tell us a little about present day. You may know you just you are now married and your husband's an author mm-hmm. and your brother in law is a hematologist oncologist. So why don't you tell us about yes. life now and all the good things going on? Um, life now is just is is amazing and you know, to have a husband who's just been so incredibly supportive. He actually lost his mom to cancer for, uh, I guess, four or five years ago. And so he's just been so supportive and so encouraging, and he was with his mom through everything. And he takes me to all my, you know, anytime I have a doctor's appointment, anytime um, I have things like that come up, he's right there by my side to hold my hand and and help me to get through it. And he's been amazing and takes such good care of me. And and to have a brother-in-law who is an oncologist and, 
when the fear and the anxiety comes up for me to be able to have him to go to if I have a concern or if I'm worried about something and being able to know that he'll answer me honestly and tell me the truth and, and that he'll be straight with me about it um, definitely helps. So I know kind of the worst that can happen and the best that can happen going into it. Um, and knowing that he'll make sure, you know, that the best choices and the best decisions are, are being made. And, um, and then also my grandfather, who's been my pediatrician my whole life, who will be 96 in August. Um, and, you know, having him checking in on me periodically as well, uh, you know, is really reassuring as well. And, and he's, you know, he's stayed on top of everything up to this point. So I really had a, a great support team and, you know, they helped me to, to, you know, when things come up to be able to, to handle what I need to do. And, and, uh, and, but yeah, life is amazing. And I've been a dancer my whole life and I've returned to dancing again and, um, which is fantastic. And I've been able to just, my husband and I, you know, try to live life to the fullest and try to take advantage of every moment that we're given together and, and try to do all the things that we can. And, you know, we really just look at each day as a gift and, and every moment that we get together, you know, we cherish and treasure. And I think that's one of the things that I've learned is, is not to take any moment for granted and take the good with the bad and, and be able to have positive things come out of it. I wanted to ask you, we got about three minutes left. I wanted to have you comment on the elephant in the room, which is fertility and I don't think yeah. 14 years ago there was any technology for teenagers to preserve their fertility. Today it's even still a questionable practice. Uh, so what is your current status at this point? Um, it's, you know, my husband and I definitely, we both have talked about it. We both definitely want to have kids. We want to have a family of our own 100% for sure. Um, you know, and that's, I think that's something, being that I dealt with it as a teenager, I think it's always kind of been something that's been on my mind, but I I think I've been too scared and too afraid to kind of go through the testing and, and kind of to find out whether I really can or not. And to, you know, because part of me wants to know and part of me is scared to find out the truth when it comes to that aspect. Um, I think, you know, there's been, there's a lot of disappointment and a lot of things that come from trust issues and things like that that come from having cancer. And I think, uh, you know, that's one more thing that I think I just don't want to be disappointed and I don't want to doubt if I find out that I can't, even though I know that there are other options and other choices out there, you know, to be able to have a family, I would love to be able to have kids of my own, but I know that there are things that you have to you know, kind of testing that you have to go through before you can make that choice and make that decision. Well, your attitude is quite infectious and it is incredibly positive and it actually is a nice segue into uh, tonight's broadcast, which is about alternative healing and spontaneous permission, but how human beings can alter their behavior or adopt different behaviors mm -hmm. that improve their outcomes for wellness. Do you partake in any yoga or, uh, or Reiki or um, uh, acupressure type of uh, programs? Um, I've done acupressure and I did yoga when I was younger, but I think, I think for me, in terms of the anxiety and stuff like that, uh, my husband and I being that we're both dancers, dance has kind of become my therapy um, and kind of my alternative way to, to be able to sort of deal with a lot of the extra stress and anxiety that, that I deal with and go through on a regular basis and um so that's kind of become 
the therapy for me, I think, um, in terms of, in terms of that. Um, and then, you know, just making sure that I, you know, that I exercise and that I get enough sleep and just, there are just little things that I think you can do that make a difference in terms of, you know, in terms of that. So, you know, that's kind of, uh, you know, the way that I have handled it. Well, again, very, very inspiring. Um, and you're in Denver, and we are hosting our conference in Denver next year, and we look forward to engaging you and learning more about your yeah, work and the whole mishpucha invested and involved in our, mm-hmm. our event. Uh, we've been talking to Brittany Ross, a uh, 14-year survivor of AML, a uh, long-term childhood cancer survivor, now married, 29 years old, um, phenomenal, inspiring. Thank you so much for joining us. Brittany Ross, everybody. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. Good night. All right, Kenny, let's get the, the news. Hello, Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.org. That is events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events happening nationwide. Something could be happening here next to those. We certainly don't want you missing out. Matthew, we have some events happening in Durham, St. Paul, Anchorage, New York, New York, Denver, Chicago, and Houston. Okay, cancer is lonely, period. End of statement. We've got the cure. It's called Instapeer, a forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by cancer. Visit instapeer.org to watch our video, learn more about the project, and consider making a donation so you can be a part of history. Instapeer.org. All right, it's always a good time to stock up on Stupid Cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with our all-new products and styles to choose from. We've got a brand-new skateboard uh, and also our cancer bird mascot, Flip. I think he's traveled as far as the Netherlands. Yes, that is true. Crazy. Check out stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Stupid Cancer Cancer News. Okay, now it is time for our main... Events. Very exciting topic tonight, Radical Remission. We are joined by Dr. Kelly Turner, New York Times bestselling author, researcher, and speaker in the field of integrative oncology. And Dr. Mitch Gaynor is the founder and president of Gaynor Integrative Oncology in New York. He is also a bestselling author of four books and six CDs focused on healing and health. Joining us live here in studio, Drs. Kelly Turner and Mitch Gaynor. Folks, welcome. Welcome, welcome. Unmuting you would help. How's that? Oh, that's, that's oh, awesome. oh, we can, can hear you now. now. Thanks for having us. <laughs> no, it's very exciting. It's very exciting. Um, I believe that either I found you on LinkedIn or I saw your book somewhere or I read it on Dr. Oz or something like that. And Probably I like, Dr. Oz or, uh, or our friend Saren Rothberg, who's in the book. Oh, that's right, Saren. Uh, Saren Rothberg, also a young adult survivor, founder of Comedy Cures here in New York City, a really good friend of mine, just got married. Mm-hmm. Very Wonderful, sweet person. She has been on the show. Yeah. Um, so it was probably her and the combination of that being the Dr. Oz thing that happened. Right. Um, and I was really inspired because it's not a topic we've ever covered okay. on the show before. Okay. And not because we didn't want to, but just it just seemed like something that, um, you know, made sense. To, you know, we've been on the air for almost seven and a half years now, and this is something of interest. And, and I think it can cause a lot of conversation, and, yeah. and I think that kind of sets the stage a little bit. Definitely. So tell us all about you. Well, um, I started off getting into working with cancer patients because of a young 
person with cancer. Um, a good friend of mine was diagnosed with stomach cancer when we were 14, right before our eighth grade graduation. And um, unfortunately, he passed away two years later. So it just, you know, was something that touched me and my whole community. I come from a small town in Wisconsin, and it just shook us all up, you know, to the core. And so it probably shouldn't surprise me that um, when I graduated from Harvard and was trying to figure out my next steps, I really gravitated towards working with cancer patients. And I went back to Berkeley for my master's in counseling. Because you're an underachiever. Yeah, yeah. I have a little problem with school. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But I was very happy being a counselor for cancer patients and helping them through the, you know, as, as you all know so well, the emotional upheaval of it. And I was working with a lot of young women with breast cancer. Um, I was working for a doctor who specialized in breast cancer, and it's striking women at a younger and younger age. So, But I was doing that, and everything was fine, and I had found my calling, and that was it. Until I came across during my lunch break a case of radical remission, uh, which is called spontaneous remission by the medical field, but I can talk later about why I don't like was that Was this word. a patient at? Your clinic? No, this wasn't a book. This was an Andrew Wiles classic book called Spontaneous Healing yes. that I was just reading for fun on my lunch break. And about halfway through, he mentioned someone who turned around their cancer after being sent home on the hospice. And I just sort of froze. And I said, You didn't think that was like some hokey pokey nothingness? Or? I, well, I did. I said, Did yeah. this really happen? Right. Because if this really happened, I shouldn't be hearing about it in a 10 year old book. I should have heard about it 10 years ago, you know in the news, Mm -hmm. front page news. Um, So I was really sort of confused. And I went home and I started doing some research in the medical archives. And I found that night that there were over a thousand of these cases published in medical journals, verified, documented, absolutely true cases of spontaneous radical remission. And I said, what's going on here? I was working at a major cancer research institution in San Francisco. That's where I was doing the counseling. These thousand cases weren't ever referenced or talked about, and I realized that no one was looking into them, looking for common threads, or even going deeper, because these thousand medical cases are often just biomedical reports. So it's patient X came in with lung cancer, six months later they came in after I'd sent them home on hospice, and they came in with a clear scan. No hypothesis. End of report. Very matter of fact. Matter of fact. Yeah. And, you know, here I am, I'm a, I'm a psychotherapist, right? So I'm writing questions in the margin like, well, what did the patient feel? And what did the patient do? And did anyone ask the patient, the survivor, this amazing, incredible survivor, if they did anything to have this, quote, unquote, spontaneous remission? Um, and a week later, I was sitting across from a woman, and I, I mentioned this in my introduction of the book, and she was 31 with two young babies, um, and she was, you know, dealing with stage three aggressive breast cancer, and she was getting chemotherapy as as we had our session, because I was doing psychotherapy while people were getting chemotherapy, and she broke into tears and she said, "What can I do to get well? Like, tell me anything and everything, because I do not want to leave my children motherless." And I just sort of had this moment where, like, my world stood still because I thought of these a thousand cases that no one had ever looked into, and I was looking at this woman who was so sick she couldn't even walk to the bathroom by herself. And she wanted to know what she could do in addition to this chemotherapy. And I just said, you know, I'm going to go find out for you. I'm going to go look into this. 
stuff, but I did. I went back for my PhD at Berkeley and specifically to study this. Um, I can't, I still can't believe they let me do it, <laughs> but that's Berkeley for you. Um, and I just really started finding these people and asking them what they did. How'd you do that with HIPAA and all that? Um, it's complicated. Um, yeah. I couldn't, I couldn't interview children. Um, so, you know, I could have, but it would have been like 10 extra steps of red tape. Um, but you know, I had to get them permission, um, to talk to them and ask them about their medical history. I had to get their permission to, to verify their cases with their doctors. And then, um, I had to get their permission to use their real name if they wanted. My default, of course, is always to use a pseudonym, but some people, as you know, probably from this organization are really proud to say that they survived, especially these survivors who were often given up on by their doctors. They want to shout from the rooftops. I'm still here. I, I made it. And, um, not many people have asked them how they did it. So, What was the common thread between all these patients? Or is there a common thread? Was there like a similar diagnosis, a type of cancer, or was it all, all just very random? Um, radical remissions happen across all types of cancer, and that's what's so fascinating. It, it doesn't just happen in one type of cancer. So it's been reported across every type of cancer, all ages. Um, and so I've been studying this now for 10 years. I've analyzed 1,000 cases myself, done over 200 in-depth interviews, but there are actually an estimated 100,000 cases out there that no one is studying. Where does that number come from? Well, it's for me and a bunch of the other few people who are looking into this because they aren't tracked. These cases are not tracked in the National Cancer Registry, which makes it really hard to study. So, for example, you know, Sarah Rothberg, um, our friend here from New Jersey, she was diagnosed with aggressive stage 3 breast cancer and eventually turned to stage 4. And she did everything her doctors told her. She had three surgeries. She had tons, tons of chemotherapy and multiple rounds of radiation, and nothing was working. It just kept coming back and coming back and coming back. So she's in the National Cancer Registry as being a breast cancer patient who was diagnosed and had this Western treatment. Well, she eventually had to branch out and try other things because nothing was working on the Western medicine front. She ended up coming up with a combination of factors, which are the nine common factors that I found in my research. Um, a particular one that was helpful for her was laughter and um, really making sure to find at least five minutes of joy a day. Another one that was really helpful for her were, was Tibetan herbs, so um, more herbs and supplements. But she ended up going into complete remission. Well, in the National Cancer Registry, she's now, because she went back to her doctors, she kept in touch with them, which right. many of the people I studied don't. She did go back and she said, hey, guess what? Let's look at my scan. My cancer's gone. And it was. She's now marked in the registry as being in remission due to her chemotherapy and her surgery. Because there's nowhere to check that she had these other treatments. Right. Cases are really hard to find. So it, it, radical in terms of spontaneous, it's not really that. It's really induced by behavioral change. Right. And that's why I call it radical. Radical changes in their lives. Um, spontaneous is a phrase that was coined by a doctor in the early 1900s because he couldn't explain it. He right. couldn't explain why these people got well. But spontaneous means that something happened by accident. Right. It also implies that it happened quickly. But the people that I study, which is now over 1,000 cases, these people take on average two years to get well, and they work really hard. They work their butts off. They make tons of radical changes in every area of their life. So to call it spontaneous is kind of offensive to to some of them. So that's why we came up with the word radical. What were some of the changes they made? I know that you've talked a lot about cutting out sugar. I hear that 
every day of my life, uh-huh. um, especially for my own doctor, because I'm fighting stage four cancer. So I'm like, what can, what can I, I do? do? Yeah. Right. Well, it's just important for me to say, first of all, that I'm not a medical doctor. I'm a PhD researcher, so I'm not giving medical advice, um, nor is my book um, meant to give advice. It's meant to present these nine hypotheses about how these people may have gotten well. Um, just like to start with that. How many um, people in total do you actually physically meet and or talk to? 200 in-depth interviews and then 1,000 printed cases. So I'm sure amongst these, you know, of the commonalities, there were probably 100 million variables that you had to condense and identify and isolate. Oh, yeah. It was, a, it was long and arduous. Um, there are actually more than 75 different factors, 75 different things that these people did in their attempts to try to go into remission. But not everyone did all 75. What I found is that everybody that I studied did eight or nine of the 75. So that's why my book has these nine factors. Um, if they did all 75, it would be a very long book. Yes. And I sort of wish they'd all done just four because it would have been much easier to write. Right. <laughs> but they did, they did these nine things. And um, so to answer your question, Annie, what are they? Um, two of them were physical and seven of them were mental and emotional which at first can seem kind of strange that a lot of the healing was on a mental, emotional level, but these people had done everything they, had, they could do physically. They had listened to their doctors. They tried all the chemo and the surgery and the radiation, so they were sort of out of options when it came to the physical treatments. But um, the two physical were, of course, changing your diet, radically changing your diet, and taking herbs and supplements. So if you want, I can go into more depth about one of those. Well, this might be a good time to bring in Dr. Gaynor. Yeah. Um, the idea of integrative oncology is, is relatively new uh, as an accepted practice that isn't considered like bunk and voodoo and nonsense. Uh, when I was in my treatments 18 years ago, there was no such thing. It was cut you, I had brain cancer. So cut you open, rip you out, give you radiation, chemotherapy if you need it, and goodbye. Uh, there wasn't even like, I wasn't even part of like a, there was no social worker. There was nothing. I mean, we can forgive the 90s for sucking in general, but today this sort of still happens and people are very averse to anything that isn't what we're brought up to believe is, is just the way it is. So I, I was hoping you could talk about how you got started in this practice and if you had faced any of the stigma in integrative oncology and what has been your, your response to the professional in the industry. Well, I um, really started out uh, – very scientific. I did all my training at uh, Cornell internship and residency. I was chief medical resident. I was a fellow. I did molecular biology uh, research at Rockefeller University. So I was very grounded in the mainstream aspect. And I still do uh, in my practice use all the targeted therapies and chemotherapies. I think those are important. But what really struck me uh, especially when I was studying nutrient gene interactions, is how various micronutrients could literally turn on genes that uh, could suppress cancer and turn off genes that promoted cancer. And I was flabbergasted that with the best medical training available in the Western world, nobody had ever even discussed that. And that was in the uh, late 80s when this whole field of uh, epigenetics was really just uh, starting. And since then, uh, really, there we have a much different understanding of cancer. What integrative oncology really is, it's a fundamental uh, improvement in what cancer is. So 
we know that uh, people, by the time they're in their 20s, uh, almost everybody is walking around with some cancer in their bodies. Uh, and we know that from autopsy studies of people who died in car accidents or wars. And when they do the autopsies, they find one or more dormant cancers in the thyroid gland, breast, colon, lung. It could be anywhere, uh, but very often more than one site. But the fact is it's dormant. Clearly, we know 100% of people aren't going on to develop active cancer in their life. So my focus really is if you have active cancer, you want to do everything you can to make it back to being dormant like it is in everybody else. If you are walking around like the rest of the world with dormant cancer cells, you want to keep them that way. And there are a number of ways that we go about that. Well, that actually, and that is something I've been talking about from my layperson perspective for years, that cancer is a naturally occurring biological thing that has been happening since the dawn of evolution. Absolutely. It's just a thing, right? Everyone has cancer, whether it's dormant or active. And people don't get that. And, and I don't know if it's fair to expect people to get that, but now that there's accepted consensus that this is the way it is, it makes language easier to talk to people about it. Um, Ab sorry, go ahead. Absolutely. And, you know, now it's just not like my opinion uh, or your opinion. <laughs> That's this so is nice, isn't it? scientific <laughs> fact. Yeah. Uh, and so I think that the way things have gone since President Nixon in the 70s declared the, quote, war on cancer, right, that we've thing. spent tens and tens of billions of dollars every decade. And what we found out from that is more is not necessarily better. Right. Uh, and so now we're going more into what we call metronomic doses or almost homeopathic doses of chemotherapy that can be used longer. We're finding that that causes cells to naturally regress, become dormant. A lot of the new therapies and nutrients are directed at boosting the immune system, specifically the parts that fight cancer. And, you know, I think that one of uh, the most important things is the mind-body connection, the mind-body unity, because that is every bit as important to strengthening the immune system and decreasing inflammatory markers as any of the nutrients, any of the drugs. And when you understand it that way, uh, I think that all of this, you know, word integrative begins to take on a whole different meaning. It's absolutely essential uh, that people incorporate these things because all these are coming to bear on whether you have active or dormant cancer, not only now, but throughout your life. Well, we're, I was just got back from ASCO. We were talking about ASCO, the American Society of Clinical Oncology Annual Conference. 30,000 doctors from all around the world convened for the latest and greatest. My takeaway was all the, the almost the science fiction level eugenics discussions that, that we're now moving into a phase where it doesn't matter what we have inside our body. We're just going to make ourselves super soldiers and it's going to kill anything else. But I wanted to ask you, you know, that's not going to obviously rule out the fact that there is a mind-body connection. Is there any fact, and I get back to, to Dr. Turner, um, I've heard, you know, we, we've been doing this for a long time, and lots of nutrition seminars and webinars and workshops and lots of crazy people, but smart people, we don't know. And we're a generation that's naturally conspiratorial against anything and everything because we want to be, and it's fun. But is alkalinity and inflammation truly the root of all disease? 
Well, Dr. Gaynor can probably answer that better than I since he's a medical doctor. Yeah, did you find that in your patients that you interviewed? The changes that they were making in terms of diet and supplements were towards non-inflammation. Um, the, and Dr. Gaynor can comment on the alkaline debate. That has sort of been not not debunked, but people are shifting away from using the word alkaline to non-inflammatory because okay. your body will be alkaline. Your your body must be alkaline in order for you to live. Um, to eat a quote-unquote alkalizing diet, there are some people who think that you're helping your body to have an easier time to keep it alkaline. So if you're just dumping a lot of acidic food in there, your body has to work sort of overtime to get it back to right. alkaline. Um, but again, people are really starting to use the word inflammation versus non inflammation. And certainly the diet that the people that I study used in order to try to get well, which is moving towards a lot of fruits and vegetables, and I mean a lot, and then moving away from things like meat, wheat, sweets, and dairy, that's your classic non-inflammatory diet. Um, Dr. Gaynor, do you have anything to add to that? I agree. I think it is more uh, anti-inflammatory, and there are a number of inflammatory mediators. If you look of uh, heart disease, for instance, if you look at the cause of diabetes, which is becoming epidemic, if you look at cancer, when I started in practice, it was one in three Americans who would hear the words, you have cancer. In the next 10 years, it's going to be 50% of all Americans. I mean, if that's not an epidemic, I don't know what is. Uh, and all of the things that promote inflammation also promote these three illnesses, cancer, heart disease, and diabetes. So, I uh, believe Dr. Turner's right. We want to really talk more about anti-inflammatory, uh, which is uh, by nature going to be more alkaline. You have any questions, Danny? Well, I was just wondering, like, can you explain that a little more in layman's terms of what exactly that diet would be? I know you mentioned no red meat and things like that, but, you know, is it like a being strictly vegetarian, vegan? What's the thought on dairy? That's a great question because everybody wants to know that. And it's a great question also because there is so much misinformation. Uh, there are all these fad diets out there. Uh, and they think? change. <laughs> I like the Hollywood cookie diet. <laughs> <laughs> that was snooky, I think. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they change, you know, week to week. And so, of course, everybody uh, is confused. And I think the key things are is you want to have key nutrient foods in your diet every day that promote detoxification, for instance. So we have all these toxins that since, you know, the end of World War II that we were never exposed to before, pesticides, herbicides, uh, food preservatives, uh, dioxin, all these things. And, they and get Twinkies, stored. don't forget Twinkies. <laughs> don't forget Twinkies, that's part of the processed food. And, you know, all the nutrients when you process the food, the good nutrients, the anti-cancer nutrients, they're gone. You know, so a lot of the multi-grain things I tell my patients to avoid, whole grain uh, is okay, sprouted whole grain mm -hmm. with the enzymes, even better. Uh, a lot of uh, detox things though, like garlic, uh, green tea, omega-3 fatty acids, turmeric, which is what gives curry its yellow color. All those things are absolutely key not only if you have cancer, if you don't want to get it in the first place. And then there are a number of things for your immune system uh, that help immune function. Everybody should know uh, their vitamin D3 level. That's something called 25-hydroxy vitamin D. 
all the studies are showing now, specifically for breast cancer, uh, women with the lowest D3 levels have the highest rates of breast cancer, and women with the lowest D3 levels, 25-hydroxy vitamin D levels, when they're diagnosed with breast cancer, have about a 90% increased chance of developing metastatic disease. That's just one nutrient that's key in T-cell function, which is what uh, kills uh, cancer to begin with. Uh, then there's the whole sugar uh, connection, white sugar, white flour. Uh, so I tell people to go more with honey. Uh, fruit has a lower glycemic index and processed white sugar. Uh, stevia, I think, is good. I'm not big on agave nectar because that has a higher glycemic index. With pastas, again, whole grain, brown rice rather than white rice. Uh, and uh, these are uh, the kinds of things that will lower something called insulin-like growth factor because every time your pancreas has to make insulin, the more insulin it makes, the more insulin-like growth factor, which is a big promoter for tumors, your liver is making. And um, people can think about simple things, too. They'd have to talk with their doctor. But I recommend there's all this data now in cancer prevention from ovarian cancer to breast cancer, uh, with just low-dose baby aspirin. So I have a lot of my patients on two baby aspirin a day. And we're also using adjunctively with cancer now a uh, 60-year-old drug called metformin, which was originally used to treat uh, diabetes. It came from an herb. It came from the French lilac, was made into a drug in 1955. And over the ensuing years, they noticed people on metformin had 40% less cancer than everybody else. Amazing study was done in breast cancer. Uh, they just wanted to see how women with very large breast cancers did with chemotherapy that were diabetic. Some of the women were on insulin. Some were on the newer anti-diabetic drugs like Actos and Genuvia. Some were on metformin. Amazingly, when they went back and looked at the data, the women who happened to be on the metformin had a threefold increased pathologic complete remission rate compared to the other women. Uh, so that was fascinating compared with all the other drugs, and we know now that works. It lowers insulin-like growth factor, a tumor promoter, and increases tumor suppressor genes. So people are doing gene therapy, uh, you know, with the foods they're putting in their body. It's not necessarily something that's 50 years away. I, we I, I tried metformin when I was first in remission, and I had such a hard time. My body just couldn't handle the drug. It made me very sick. But now it's now that it came back, it's like, wow, I wish I could turn back time and do things differently, but of course you can't. But um, one thing that's interesting, well, one thing I won't be doing is having a bagel and cream cheese before I go to chemotherapy tomorrow. It is actually possible, though, that you may still be able to take it. Sometimes mm -hmm. if you write the brand name, which is glucophage, that works. And they also have a, an elixir, a liquid form mm -hmm. of metformin. And a lot of people tolerate that just didn't tolerate the generic. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I just remember being so nauseous all the time when I was taking the metformin. I took it off trial, but I did try it and, um, yeah, have a little bit of regret right now. But but I think it's important to also point out that, that everything that you're recommending is not a replacement for allopathic treatment. And I think that's the point that people lose, that folks like, you know, not to call her out, but like a Suzanne Summers, who just completely goes off treatment, risks her life, and gets lucky by doing what she did, sets a poor example that this is integrative, complementary, not a replacement. 
my question for Dr. Turner is about the emotional component of this. How do people laugh and stay happy and find that space when you're given six months to live and you have kids to deal with and you're mortgaged and you go broke and you're insurance? How do you find that time? Yeah, it's really hard, as as you all know very personally, and as I saw, um, you know, indirectly in my counseling practice. The the radical remission survivors that I study, they treated it like going to the gym. So there's always days when I don't feel like exercising and I don't drag my butt to the gym, um, but I know I should. And that's how they treated their mental health. They treated it just as important as flossing, brushing their teeth, eating their broccoli, or going to the gym. And so even if they had had a day of terrible news, even if they had a, had a day of crying or a day of stress, they said, you know what, I haven't, I haven't smiled today. I haven't done anything to make me feel joy. So I'm going to just stop everything and fake it until I make it. And they would go on YouTube and they'd watch, you know, epic fail videos or <laughs> sad videos, like anything that would make them just laugh. Um, and, you know, the studies that are coming out of this wonderful field of science immunology, which studies how... Gesundheit. Yeah, you're welcome. Um, you know, it's, it's studying how your, your psychological states affect your brain and therefore affect your immune system. What we found, not we, I should, you know, not me personally, but what these, these researchers have found is that, for example, 10 seconds of hugging can significantly increase your oxytocin, which of course then leads to increased white blood cells. Right? So 10 seconds of hugging your cat or your teddy bear or, you know, maybe, maybe you know, someone that, that you're close with. Um, and laughter, same thing, you know. Two minutes of hearty laughter has been shown to increase your natural killer cells. So suddenly all of these mind-body techniques that the people that I study were using because they had nothing else to try, we now know from a scientific standpoint why they might have actually been helping their immune system. Because really, at, at the point where people have tried Western medicine to its fullest and they have, you know, they're on hospice, their only hope at that point is their own immune system. And the nine factors that I've found that are um, common for radical remission survivors all either directly or indirectly strengthen the immune system. Well, if you need any, I, I personally uh, watch uh, celebrities read mean tweets by Jimmy Kimmel. That's what makes me laugh <laughs> yes. when I can't sleep or I'm all depressed about what's going on. But my question regarding the mind's body, what do you, how do you feel about people taking antidepressants or anti-anxiety medication? I personally do see a shrink at the cancer center. I hate, well, psychiatrist. But I have to say, it's like my favorite 45 minutes ever because you can complain or get things off your chest and they'll give you constructive ways to handle it. But a lot of doctors also feel a constructive way to deal with that is medicating. And especially a lot of people have trouble sleeping or dealing with all this tremendous amount of stress. So do you think that helps the situation or do you think that's just kind of numbing the situation? Um Again, I'm not a medical doctor, mm -hmm. and I think everybody needs to find a solution that works for them. Certainly when I was working at um, that cancer hospital in San Francisco, many of the women in the breast cancer practice were um, on antidepressants mm -hmm. and also sleeping pills. Mm -hmm. um, what I can say from the people that I've studied, these radical remission survivors, sleep was very important to them. Um, and finding a way to release fear and stress and anxiety was you know, one of the key factors is releasing suppressed emotions. Mm -hmm. And if the only way that you can release that fear and that anxiety is through an antidepressant pill, then 
you know, then maybe that's your solution. I mean, the people that I study also did therapy. They also did things like Reiki. They also jumped out of airplanes. <laughs> you know, whatever you need to do for your particular you know, situation. out yeah. of airplanes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I see Dr. Gaynor nodding as you're talking about this. I just want to, as a medical oncologist, just get your opinion on that as well. Yeah, I agree uh, with Dr. Turner. It. I do a lot of work with uh, sound therapy and uh, breathing exercises that come from yoga. Every time somebody comes in for chemo, uh, after their exam, I'll give them a session uh, that involves uh, listening to certain brainwave entrainment music that I've created, uh, some yoga chanting, some deep breathing, some guided imagery. And they've even done animal studies showing uh, that when animals with cancer are stressed, uh, they don't respond to the chemotherapy. And uh, it really, it's very, very empowering for people. There are so many studies in uh, what Dr. Turner mentioned, psychoneuroimmunology, that show uh, that these types of practices elevate natural killer cell number, elevate natural killer cell activity. Uh, so there's a lot of scientific data uh, behind it, and I think they all work uh, hand in hand. And as far as whether people need sleeping meds or antidepressants or anti-anxiety drugs, I also agree. It's, none of this is one or the other. Uh, you know, it's not like either chemotherapy or alternative therapy. By the same token, it's not a matter of taking an antidepressant or something for anxiety, choosing between that and spiritual growth and um, really coming to know what's important in life. Um, one of my uh, teachers in India, uh, when I first went there, who uh, really taught me so many of these yoga techniques, uh, he said, I understand Dr. Mitch does a lot of work with vitamins with his patients in New York. And I said, yeah. He says, does Dr. Mitch know which is the most important vitamin to give to a patient? And I said, well, a lot of vitamins are important. I couldn't say I know the exact most important one. He said the most important vitamin a doctor could give to his patients is to teach them who they are and why they're here. So that means who you are on a soul level and why you're here. What's the real purpose of a human birth? And so that those questions are really part of the blessing of cancer. And I've taken care of thousands of people over my uh, career. I've seen a lot of people beat the odds and really virtually everybody has said that looking back, that having had cancer in retrospect was one of the greatest blessings because they were able to learn how to live each day. And it's really so much less uh, about the quantity uh, of somebody's life than the richness uh, that people are able to find. And so many people find it, so many of my patients just love talking to people who were just diagnosed. Uh, they come in, they sit with them for their chemotherapy. I have people uh, who come back, they just love it. And uh, they get in touch with them, they give them their numbers and call it home. And so, you know, it's really a difference between happiness and joy. Uh, happiness is about getting something you want, but joy is about giving and then seeing that person's reaction to what you've given. Uh, and that really lasts forever. So it, it it's a really beautiful thing. It's sort of why I love doing what I do every day. 
we only have about three or four minutes left, and I, we could do seven shows with the two mm-hmm. of you here nonstop, and I think we'd cards would explode. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I did want to talk about access because access to care is challenging for disparity groups, for young adults, people with low insurance, or underinsured people. And it's one thing to find a doctor who can take care of you. It's another one to find a doctor who's aware that you exist. Not you personally, but these philosophies exist. A lot of hospitals do not have integrative medicine. They don't have nutritionists. They don't have psychotherapists. They don't have navigators. So how many patients rhetorically would go unaware of their understanding that this option exists for them as a collaborative way to sort of improve their outcomes? What has been the response to your research with regard to this, and are there changes that can be made to that point? Well, I certainly think we have a long way to go in terms of what's at the hospitals. Um, you know, as a as a counselor at a major hospital, I was, um, you know, fourth on the totem pole of who, of who got to see this patient. Um, right. So we have a long way to go. But, you know, a lot of the comprehensive cancer centers do have integrative centers that they're now attaching to the hospital. So it's, it's coming. What what I love about the research that I've done and these nine key factors is that they're all things that you can do on your own. You don't need a doctor. You don't need someone else. Um, you might need to do a lot of, you know, introspection and, you, you know, it's not going to be easy necessarily, but right. these are things that you can do on your own. Um, and there are a lot of research, re, uh, there are a lot of resources out there um, in libraries, on the internet, at in trusted sites where you can learn about, you know, diet, you can um, read about herbs, but you should always take them under the guidance of a health professional. And then the mental, emotional things, you know, even just journaling, you know, just journaling or take, having a gratitude journal, um, little things like that you can do on your own. And uh, I just want to say one thing quickly, just back to your point. Um, even though I study people who don't use Western medicine, and that's because either they chose not to from the beginning or they tried Western medicine and it didn't work, it doesn't mean that I'm against Western medicine. Um, it just means that as a, as a researcher, this was a very interesting control group. Right. And what I learned from studying this control group is that there are things that these people were doing to strengthen their immune system. It doesn't mean that you have to wait until you're on hospice to do them. These are things that you can do alongside chemotherapy right now to help your immune system. And a lot of these things that have been studied have been shown to reduce side effects of chemotherapy, surgery, and radiation. Wow. Can I ask one more question? Sure. Okay. Sorry, we'll go a little over time. One of my questions I was thinking about this while you guys were talking about it, um, so I'm in chemotherapy, and sometimes it's very difficult to eat those foods. Like sometimes all your body will want is a bagel or you'll be too nauseous to even consider eating a vegetable or a salad or something like that. So what would be your advice be, you know, to, to integrate this into your life but make it a little bit easier while you're dealing with the side effects of chemotherapy? I don't know if this question for both of you. or Yeah, well, I, I can take a stab at it and then see what Dr. Gaynor has to say. But um, there's a great book out there to answer questions like this called The Cancer Fighting Kitchen by Rebecca Katz because um, – She's and, been on the show. Yeah, and, yeah. and I, I learned this when I was pregnant and had terrible nausea that wouldn't respond to anything. I also craved, you know, white bread and white things. And what I found was that um, I would have a couple bites of, you know, freshly baked mashed potatoes, and then I would have a couple more bites of yams, and then I would make sure that I had some oil, like some avocado, some fat in there. And um, – if you, if you coat your stomach with those healthy carbs and the healthy oils first, then I could have some vegetables. But if I started with the broccoli, it would come right up. Right. And Rebecca Katz does a great job of covering what to eat when you're nauseous. You know, there's this mm-hmm. great magic mineral broth in her book, which is like the healthiest thing you could eat. If you can't 
stomach anything else, you, you, most everybody that I've worked with can at least drink that broth. It's, an, it's a vegetable broth. Okay. Dr. Gaynor, do you have anything to say to that? Yeah, I uh, agree with that. Their nausea and loss of appetite uh, is a big problem. There are uh, things, uh, Dr. Kerner mentioned avocado, mm-hmm. uh, but there are also teas you can make with saffron, uh, very good mint. Ginger? Uh, very good ginger can help a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so <laughs> I haven't tried that. We'll have to do a study. Well, they can preserve you forever, right? So. They can. Well, not true. My coworker tried it. My yeah. former coworker tried it, and um, a year and a half later, they are rocks. So Twinkies don't last forever. Wow. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now that is a PhD dissertation waiting to happen. Mm-hmm. Well, I again, we can go on and on. This is a phenomenal topic. We've covered this numerous times, and all of this makes sense. But the idea that you can truly eugenicize yourself. Uh, just by doing simple things is so foreign to our culture because of what we've evolved in as a society and, and more and more people are now awakened to these realities. It's not myth. It's not, it's not bunk. It's real science now. And your book is really making the case that it, now there's science, science behind these are real people with real stories that you went out and found and talked to. And it's extraordinary. Yeah, it, it's 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 a whole new exploration of how of how to maximize our own immune system. And just to bring up the coolest study that I've heard recently, they took the people who'd never meditated, had to meditate for eight weeks, and after just eight weeks, they were able to turn off disease-promoting genes and turn on health-promoting genes. So, literally, what you how you behave with your thoughts, with what you put in your mouth. Um, how you move your body, it can affect your genes in as little as eight weeks. And I find that so cool and so empowering. I have an X prize for anyone that can get me to meditate. So you're on. All right, I'll, I'll try. All right, we've been talking with uh, Dr. Mitch Gander, who is the founder and president of Gander Integrative Oncology, and the fabulous Dr. Kelly Turner, author of Radical Remission, Surviving Cancer Against All Odds. Thank you so much for joining us. Please join us again. And... Uh, I guess uh, very excited to have you live in the studio. Nothing like being live. Thank you. All right, that's our show. Any uh, words of wisdom, Kenny? Prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, my goo, you got it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 311th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did smoking a stick. That's stupid cancer. I'd like to thank our guests, Rosa Armstrong, Brittany Ross, and Drs. Kelly Turner and Mitchell Gaynor. On next week's show, Parenting While Facing the Challenge of Cancer presents a litany of major issues and concerns, not the least, which is how to talk to their children. Join us tonight, join us next week as we welcome parents, survivors, Jen Singer, Adam Johnson, and Francesca Geisman to discuss an incredibly important issue. So have a spotlight on Megan Hildebrand. All right, folks, subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes, Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out online anytime at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancershow.org. Remember, 
It ain't stupid. It ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of Andy Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here live next Monday, 8 o'clock. Good night, folks. Good night.